me out to the ball game. Take oh, me out okay. to the crowd. Buy me some penis and cracker jack. I don't care if I never get back for it. For the home team. If they don't win, it's a shame. For it's one, two, three strikes, you're out at the old ball game. That was very good. I take responsibility for that. I know. (laughs) (laughs) That was good. You knew all the words. Oh, thank you, my dear. Okay. Are you ready? I'm ready. All right. Who was Neil Ball and what was his claim to fame? Huh? Who? What? Neil, N-E-A-L, Ball, B-A-L-L. He was a baseball player. And what was his claim to fame? I have no idea. Really? Yeah. He was the first shortstop to perform an unassisted triple play. No kidding. No kidding. Oh, wow. That was in 1908. Wow. In 1909, he had a second distinction that most people probably wouldn't know. In 1909, um, the Yankees traded him to the Indians. And in a total of seven seasons with the Yankees, Indians, and Red Sox, this is his grand slam uh, Mm -hmm. career here, seven seasons with three different ball teams. Nobody could get rid of him. He committed 216 errors. Holy cow. Averaging 31 errors per season. Wow. He never had 125 hits in a season, and he retired <laughs> with a with a 251 average. Wow. I mean, you couldn't get rid of the guy. I guess they must have kept him around as a trophy. You I'm, keep a guy like that on a team. That's true. I remember when Bill Wompgas called in on Larry King show and he was the second baseman that created the unassisted triple play in a baseball game between Brooklyn and Cleveland in 1920 and he just called it a regular caller well that was neat to be able to hear him yeah 216 errors in seven seasons (laughs) (laughs) that's got to be a record what do you think that's a lot of stuff Kicking the ball around. Back, how come they didn't send? What, did they have the minors in oh, 1909? Yeah. yeah, they and they would have more divisions, more leagues. You, you, you could have made a whole career playing the minor leagues, made pretty good money, and still never made it to the bigs because they had so many different. I think they had 16 different minor league teams. Each major league team would have. Well, how come they didn't send him back? Well, he must still been. He made. He made some really good plays. But he just goofed on the small stuff. He, you know, <laughs> he it, won errors. Yeah, you know what it could happen. It, it'd been interesting to look up the baseball encyclopedia. Yeah. Which is online. Yeah. And just see who, uh, what shortstop those years, what would the you know the highest most errors for each year. That way you sort of see if he was average, above average, or you know. I can't imagine that he was average. Well. You know, they did, they changed baseball a lot. They didn't really have the really good gloves until about 1920. Well, there was one guy we talked about a couple of weeks ago who was the last second baseman who didn't wear a glove at right. all. Right. So, you know, with, guys guys with no equipment might have made a few mistakes. Mm-hmm. 
I suppose. Well, can you imagine the bone? Okay, I will do that. Can you imagine the bone bruises some of those players must have gotten grabbing those uh, balls? And to voluntarily not wear a glove yeah. second base when you're getting fired at, oh, my goodness, I think that's worse than the outfield. Well, think of, think of the catchers. When did they start wearing all that equipment? I mean, can you imagine all the hip ball, bats, everything they got back there? Oh, I know. They didn't wear anything, no mask, no yep. chest protector. The umpires didn't wear anything either. Oh. Uh. Oh. Uh, uh, even at that, with the chest protectors, you, they get well, you hit know, with my, a 95-mile-an-hour You know, my dad played college football in Nebraska, he played during the days of the weather with helmet with no face mask. Uh -huh. <laughs> That's why you know he doesn't have any teeth. I, I was going to ask how much of his face is left. You know, well, he got a nice face, no teeth. Just his teeth. I say just his teeth. Yeah. Oh, um, my gosh, the pain. Oy. Okay, well, um, that means I got you on the baseball. You did? Yeah, first, sure. I thought, I thought you would get that. Oh, you have confidence. Yeah, well, I mean, the first uh, on an unassisted triple play. Yeah. But that was pretty good. I guess, okay. I guess we'll know, I guess we'll know what we're going to be doing in the evenings then. You're going to have to be reading me baseball encyclopedia book just to prep me for the Saturday night show. I don't think so. <laughs> I think we have had my fill of your cup runneth over. <laughs> a small cup and it's over <laughs> okay here's here's your history question ooh, ooh, ooh. I like this one and if you don't get it it's okay I just happen to like it <laughs> are you ready I'm ready okay which president said I ask you to judge me by the enemies I have made I don't know who said that but I would guess my first guess would be Andrew Jackson. Nope. Closer to home. Mm-hmm. Ronald Reagan. I I said that I I said that poorly. I meant newer presidents than that, not closer to home. Mm-hmm. Um. Harry Truman. No, it was Roosevelt. Ah. Delano Roosevelt said that. I mean, he came up with these really goofy things yeah. once in a while, and this, some of them were so convoluted and so wordy that it, you know, he used prate, the word P-R-A-T-E, yeah. instead of chatter. So, it, you know, it, 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 can, it, it probably left some people in the dust. And when that happens... Some people are afraid to say, I don't have a clue what you said. And they just say, wow. I told you about the student I had in, um, I, I was teaching managers um, business communications. Okay. And she got sent to the class. <laughs> okay. It was such a sweet thing. And there was one person in there I could, I, I just, there was nothing I could say or do to help her get her arms around the concept that, you write for the lower end of your audience, and the upper end will take care of itself. Uh -huh. You don't write for the upper end and lose 50% of the people you need to communicate mm -hmm. with. 
And my gosh, I mean, she looked at the thesaurus when she wrote a letter. She wanted every single word to stand by itself and never repeat a word. It was, it was just dreadful. And this sweet little thing who sat in the seat next to her, and I used to ask people to critique and, and you know, find things that were good and things that could have been different, and not, not in a negative sense, but, you know, to, to help each other. And she sat there with this look on her face and said, I don't know what you said, but you sure said it good. <laughs> and Perfect. I think that happens more times than we give credit for. Mm-hmm. And I think it happens with presidents. I think it happens with corporate people. People are afraid to say, I don't understand. Would you say that a different way? They just say, oh, yeah. And then go home and say, I don't know what he said, but he sure said it good. <laughs> but I, th- I thought that was the best line ever and I actually used it in future classes and you know it helped them kind of get it so anyhow you know something that Franklin Delano Roosevelt did what during World War II I thought was interesting uh, he did a lot of things that were interesting well he none of the presidents today do it what he had a daily press conference that's right, he did. Yes, I mean, who else? Yeah. Now, now you're lucky to see a president get chased down by the press once, once every three or four months. I forgot about that. Yeah. He was really a communicator. I mean, he never went to bed. That's true. Um, that, that, that always helped buy him some time. Yeah. Hey, when you don't go to bed. Yeah. But I forgot about that. He did. He stayed was in front of the press every single day. Every day. Whether he had something to say or not. Right. He was there, and they knew he was going to be there. Right. He was, he was a master at communication. Yes. He had an irritating voice, or irritating today. I don't think it was irritating in the style of the time. Well, he had an auto style, which was a different style, which we don't use today. It, it was not conversational. You're absolutely right. right which was one of the things that made him so endearing with the fireside chats yeah. was that he let go of some of that... Um, yeah, act- did I? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think he's the last one to do that. She thinks about I don't Truman did not have that. No. And Eisenhower and Kennedy and John... So he was the last one of that... Of that. With, with, the, with the puffery. Uh-huh. Yeah, and he, he would get puffed up. But anyhow, I thought that was pretty good. Judging by the enemies he's made, <laughs> he made a lot. Oh yeah. Okay, okay. Now I got some quotes. This is a good one. I like this one. A lie gets halfway around the world before the truth has a chance to get its pants on. Oh, perfect. Now, who would have said that? That almost sounds like an Abraham Lincoln. Nope, it, it's newer than that. One of my favorite people. It seems an unlikely line from him, too. Yeah, yeah. Who? Winston Churchill. Oh, uh, yeah. You know, when I, he said these things, yeah, he, was, I, he also had a delivery that we will never see again. No. And I can't imagine that. Yeah, that's interesting. That, yeah. That's a great I line. I get halfway around the world. Great line. Truth has a chance to get his pants on. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you, I, I have to 
I have to say, because I know some good quotes from many people, this particular site that I got it from had all of the ones I know correct. So I'm trusting that they got this one right as well. It doesn't sound like Winston Churchill, but it's a great quote, and I hope he said it. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> Arthur Godfrey. <coughs> Excuse me. I'm proud to pay taxes in the United States. The only thing is, I could be just as proud for half the money. <laughs> I like that one. Okay, Steve Allen. I told you we were, uh, just by happenstance, all three of us were talking about mm -hmm. Steve Allen. Mm -hmm. Asthma doesn't seem to bother me anymore unless I'm around cigars or dogs. The thing that would bother me the most would be a dog smoking a cigar. Uh-huh. I like that one. Very good. This one is my best, though. If the Old Testament were a reliable guide in the matter of capital punishment, half the people in the United States would have to be killed tomorrow. Yeah, there's some truth to that. I'll tell you what, that Old Testament is a scary place to be. Oh, there's no doubt about it. Yep. Oof, where the brimstone was invented. Yep. My goodness. Yep. My goodness. I'm glad we live in the old, in the New Testament today, because you boy, you look at uh, you look at what was happening back in those days. I know. Yeah. Oh, good grief. Oh, my goodness. I, I don't even, you know, it, it's spooky. I don't even want to think about it. Okay, I've got October stuff, the kind of stuff that we have to observe. Well, considering this is the month of October, I think you're very timely. <laughs> that was good. <laughs> okay, on the 15th, which we have just blown, Yes. Oh, you've still got... I still got some of it. You've got 27 minutes left. I know. The sweetest day is the third Saturday of, uh, of October. Well, that's today. Okay. That's today. So next year, I have to remember to tell everybody that the sweetest day is coming up. Uh, okay. And on the 16th, which is a silly thing because that's a Sunday. That's you today. Yeah. You know, like the boss of the, you know... Maybe it's not so bad after all. You celebrate Boss's Day on a day you don't have to look at him. Perfect. You don't have to see him. That's right. Yeah. Okay. The 16th is also Dictionary Day. I like that one. That's a good book. Um, and on the 17th, which is Monday, mm -hmm. that's a good book. <laughs> Boy, you are hot tonight. Uh, have a nap? I did lay down. You did? I okay. Did. Well, you brought all your friskies tonight. Oh, good. Yeah, you good, did. Good. Okay. On the seventeenth, which is Monday. On the seventeenth. Wear some gaudy. It's wear something gaudy day. Gaudy day. Okay. Oh, I don't know. I I. Well, you're perfect. You got your pink. Uh, That's right. Your, you got your pink computer case. You know. Huh? Over the yeah, other I do, day. and it's it's really a nice, rich pink. It's and we see, and you had something else. It's what you would call rose pink. Rose pink. Oh, I, that's a nice color, yeah. That yeah, is. It's nice and rich, but, I mean, it's not, it's not like, iridescent. Oh, and, and you have your purple. Huh? And you bought your purple. Well, purple flash drive. Yeah. See? Yeah, but I'm not going to wear a flash drive. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even want to ask where you would wear a flash drive. <laughs> Where would you put a flash drive? You could bring them around, put them around your neck while you're running to the post office. Oh, all right. All right. That's that's okay. I can okay. live with that. Okay. Okay. On the 18th, now we're up to Tuesday. Yes. No, no beard day. I can deal with that. 
Okay. You can obey that one. No beard day. Mm-hmm. Could you? Uh, beard, B-E-A-R-D? Uh-huh. The weird? Yeah. Yeah, I'm a clean face kind of guy. Okay. My mom would disappoint my dad when my dad shaved his beard, though. My dad yeah. wore a beard until the early 70s, and then he shaved it. I think my mom was disappointed he didn't have a beard. When he shaved? Yeah. No kidding. He liked the beard. My dad is one of those that has to shave twice a day. Well, I guess no matter what the poor guy does, he's he's got one, huh? He's got one, uh-huh. I don't have one. Well, I'm glad you don't. Yeah, so I can observe that day very well. Yeah, you're perfect. Okay. Uh, the 19th, now we're up to what, Wednesday? You bet. And Wednesday is the 19th. Okay, it's Evaluate Your Life Day. If it's okay, I will go to Thursday. So, you you decide if you have have you spent your life correctly. No. So if you haven't done that on the on that Wednesday, and you do you get to change course. Would you ask that again, please? After you evaluate your life on Wednesday, can you change course about it on Thursday? Oh, I keep changing course. Okay. I mean, if 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 my life was a roadmap, everybody <laughs> would be lost. Well, that's okay. Yeah, I mean, I, I just, I guess, well, I don't know. I don't know an awful lot of people who would sit back and say, yeah, I did a great job. I, I think a lot of people come to a point in any point in life and say, gee, I wonder if I should have X, Y, and Z. Or, I'm sorry I made this choice. I should have made that choice. But you're dealing with that kind of an evaluation after the fact when you have more information mm -hmm. what the results are you mm -hmm. know so it's not really a fair evaluation no I'd prefer not to evaluate my life on Thursday okay Friday but not on Thursday <laughs> okay Friday is brandied fruit day I would rather have brandied fruit than evaluate my life okay at least for this week. For this week, yes. I'll, I'll evaluate it in a couple of days. Okay. Okay, the 21st is babbling day. Babble, babble. I don't have a clue. Babbling like, like babble, chattering. Babble, 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 babble. We have an awful lot of people who do that every babble, day. Babble. <laughs> so I don't think we need to set aside a yeah, single day. Well, people think that the, that the uh, politicians do that all day long. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. That's true. They've, they've taken over responsibility mm -hmm. for us. Mm -hmm. We don't have to worry about that. The 21st is also Count Your Buttons Day. I don't know. That's all it says. Count your buttons. Got your red hot buttons here. Yeah. Count your red hot. I wonder if that's anything like counting your marbles. Could be. You're a couple of marbles short mm -hmm. of, a, of a game here. Mm -hmm. And the 21st is also National Pumpkin Cheesecake Day. I like that. I think I could, I could have a slice of that. That sounds like a winner. Yep. I can deal with that. Absolutely. On graham cracker crust. On graham cracker crust? Mm-hmm. Hmm. hmm. I, I think you're pretty good. Mm-hmm. I think you're pretty good. I've got some actor and celebrity information type stuff. Sure. Yeah, it's Dashiell Hammett. Ah, uh, yes. Ah, because I gathered some Howard Duff information, mm -hmm. our Sam Spade. And I love Sam Spade. No, I, I love Howard Duff in Sam Spade. He, he was just made for that role. 
But Dashiell Hammett also wrote The Thin Man. Yep. And uh, a whole million other things, but The Thin Man and Sam Spade were the two that I think he's probably best known for. Right. What do you think? I think so. I mean, I read, I read both books, novels or whatever, yes. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think they're probably the most recognized characters that he, he put together. Right. Like for example, when I read the glass key, I I could not get I couldn't get a hold of it. That thing sort of slipped through my hand. I I didn't quite understand that story. And th- which one was that? The glass key. I didn't read that. It was part of his part of his detective series, and I think it was written like in the first person. Mm. And so I don't know. It was just wandering. Yeah. Now, you know, that's the second time you said you had a problem with mm-hmm. first-person delivery the, mm-hmm. the, the last time. What was the show that I typed up for Tim? Oh, um, probably CBF Mystery Theater. The Ghost Town? Yeah, Ghost Town. Ghost Town. And most of that story was told in first person, uh-huh. but it kept slipping back and forth right. between present and history, mm-hmm. present and history, present and history. And you had a hard time keeping up with that, and, and, you know, and it was difficult because you had the same voice telling two different stories. Right. And see, I think that that might work better in other media rather than the audio drama. I don't think I don't know if that thing works well in audio. Hmm, that's interesting. Did, did, did her voice changed enough, or the or the the background sounds and the voices of the sub characters changed, and so it it made a little bit of sense to me. I didn't have a problem following it. Well, maybe cause I listened to it one I listened to it one time and straightforward, and I guess I wasn't paying. Oh, you, you're right. You really had to pay attention uh-huh. in order to keep track of who was saying what yeah. at the time. Because when they switched from past to present to past in this story. By the way, I'm, I'm so sorry we're sitting here having a private conversation. Um, the Ghost Town was a story of a woman who was taking a vacation, a working vacation. She was a school professor and was doing research on ghost towns and historic places in the desert. And she wound up with this guy in the back seat and commandeered and threatened her with a gun and wound up in a town that wasn't even a ghost town anymore. It was a place that used to have a town, and when they showed up there, of course it was a town, and he was a person. He transformed into the person who had been in that town and he wanted to change the outcome of his life. So it, it had kind of a time-worn, um, you know, maybe not time-worn, but a dog-eared plot to it where somebody wants to go back in history and change things and come back and relive and be all nice and fun. But it didn't happen. Um, and actually, I guess he, he didn't really want to come back. He wanted to be killed so he didn't have to come back and live his life as he was living it now. Um, But when she was telling the story, she was telling it today in the present time and was describing what happened, but she was also a character in what happened. So she would be lying in a hospital bed talking about the experience, and then suddenly she'd be in the middle of the experience. And that was very hard to follow. I I agree. It 
it was you really had to be undivided in your attention. You really had to pay attention. And I, of course, had the advantage of typing out the script, so I listened to it in pieces. And I think that was an advantage to me. I think so, because if not, I would probably, to make it more distinct, uh, there would probably been some different, uh, some paragraphs or things I would do to help separate the present and the past. Uh-huh. There was not, you're right, there were not strong transitions. Wow. No bridge music that took you from one time to another. Mm-hmm. There's just nothing there to separate except the change in some of the support characters' roles. Voices, their actual voices changed a little bit, and when you had a sheriff drawing a gun, you knew it wasn't in the present, but it took you a while to know that it was a sheriff drawing a gun, so... It, I, I agree with that. That was not the neatest thing in the world. But anyhow, that was first-person delivery. And while I could keep up with the story with a little bit of help from my ears and my concentration, I thought it was a crummy ending. I am really being hypercritical on some of these shows. Well, see, Suddenly, I... Make yeah, I guess maybe I've listened to enough good... And this is probably after listening to old-time radio for 35 years. I have a tendency to want to play and listen to, I think, like the, the best of the best. Uh-huh. And... And some, some genre, I don't think, ever reached that plateau. Some some shows or some things. Didn't, mm-hmm. yeah, that, if I listen to them at the time, or like when I went to that CBS, I could appreciate for what it is. Uh, but I don't know today what I would put it at the top level I'd say is a theater guild or something like that, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, and those were quality productions. Yeah. Um, I had a pre- Now, this was an Arch Obler production, is that correct? What, the CBS? Uh, Hyman Brown. Hyman Brown. Hyman Brown was known to uh, get him in and turn him out. And it sounded like he got stuck looking for an ending and just kind of gave up and said, and everybody lived happily ever after. Yeah, well, he just hired a bunch of writers, and they just cranked them out. This was one of the cranks. Uh-huh. It, it really was. I mean, yeah. I, I could say, well, okay, it, it was almost predictable and, what was going to happen. I, way. I think Hyman Brown was amazing, Patricia, to think about here in the 70s, from 74 to 82, for an eight-year period, nine-year period, he was creating 181-hour production new a year. You're bound to have some clinkers producing that trying seven days a week. That's a lot of shows. That's a lot of show. And so, you know, he didn't spend the time with each one trying to polish it and make it the very best. I'll grant him that. That's one every other day. If, well, he would do them. What he did, he did one a day, and then, then they would repeat them. So that's how they get the full year. Okay, so he wasn't he wasn't writing 180. No, he would hire a bunch of act writers, yeah. pay them 250 bucks or whatever, and they got him a script and he just produced it. Bam. I don't know. Um, I I think quality suffers from mm-hmm. that kind of pressure and yeah. this was suffering. It's really a shame because he was such a talented writer. Mm-hmm. And he he did volume over quality. Mm-hmm. I don't know what his personal circumstances were or his 
his mission to entertain. He loved radio very much, and he was a very wealthy man because he knew how to hold on to a dollar. Uh, yeah. Um, but see, Hyman Brown was different from, let's say, Norman Corwin, who was pro prolific, productive, versus how Hyman Brown, you know, different types of, uh, of styles and cranking it out. His, his, his material had substance, and maybe people enjoyed it. Maybe. And Brown wrote to entertain people, right? and there was a remarkable difference in their style. Correct. Remarkable. Mm-hmm. Well, that's my story. I'm sticking to it. I thought that was a crummy ending. <laughs> Everybody lived happily ever after is not an ending that I, I enjoy. I didn't even like it in the fairy tale. Aww. Somebody had to get nailed here. <laughs> the dragon still breathed fire, and the wicked witch still lived in the woods. So Yeah. Anyhow. So, well, I'll get back to poor Dashiell Hammett, who... Uh, who began writing The Thin Man, apparently, for dollars, uh, because he wasn't making a whole lot of money. But it was interesting, because The Thin Man, not it wasn't particularly successful as a radio production. They, they were kind of flat, and didn't make a whole lot of sense. Well, for the audience, Dashiell Hammett did work for a private investigation service at one time, before he took up writing. I remember reading about that. Yeah. And then he started to write the, uh, the, the, I don't know, the 20s or so, and he came up with The Thin Man. And yeah. So he, he followed a good rule by writing... Something he knew. ...knew about. So he he did good on that. He, you know, I've, I've read both The Thin Man and The Sam Fade, and I think... And maybe I'm looking at it differently. I, I guess I enjoy the radio series, both the Thin Man and the Lux versions and the uh, radio version all better. Mm -hmm. Now, maybe, I, and I got think, why did he turn out to be successful movie pieces? And I think the movie people figured it, figured it out. It was the characters. They were able to take their characters and make them live on film. I don't know if it was necessarily a strong story on his writing. I don't know. Then I don't. That's a good point. I I don't think they they were. They would never take a literary award. Mm -hmm. There is no way they would do that. Yeah. But you had William Powell and Myrna Loy in the lead roles as as um, Nick and Nora Charles. Right. And they had such electricity between the two of them, and they were so perfect for the roles they were cast in. I think it was the two of them that made the writing. The writing and characters didn't have anything to do with creating or making them. Uh -huh. I mean, it was an unusual arrangement. But I, I think William Powell and Myrna Lo so played the role on the radio in which one of the, actually more than one. Well, both of them played it on Lux Radio Theater. That was it. Yeah. And, um, and then Lux Radio did it during, the, uh, Hyman Brown produced the radio version. Mm -hmm. So see, you know, Hyman cranked them out. Mm -hmm. He didn't have the same style as the film. No. 
No. And they, they, they were kind of silly plots. Right. <clears throat> Excuse me, on radio, they, right. they were kind of silly plots, you know. Right. Nora was drugged and, and, and stuffed in a in a box and got out of the box and was ready to go and, mm-hmm. you know, and help solve the, the mystery and find her friend. And it, it just, um, they, were, they were not believable. And I guess that was my problem with Ghost Town, with the woman who traveled back in time and wound up in the hospital in the present time. There was nothing believable about you know, I don't have a problem with if it's believable or not believable. If it's a good story, I guess that's what I base a lot of things on. Well, I think if you listen to shows that you think are good, I would bet you my quarter that Dennis wanted to trade me for. <laughs> I would bet my quarter that when you listen to the stories, you would be able to come away and say, well, that was believable. And that's part of what makes it so good. Okay. That's my thought. Uh-huh. And, you know, I don't know about anybody else, but, but that's my thought. Uh-huh. I think without even thinking about it or being conscious of it, when we come away from a show that is really good and really entertaining, it's because it's believable. I mean, even Connie Brooks is believable in the way they set up mm-hmm. the shows on Our Miss Brooks. Right. Even Liz in... My favorite husband got into such screwy pickles, just like Lucy did. Mm-hmm. And part of the magic was that we got into the pickle with her because it wasn't suddenly thrust on us. It was right. kind of woven into the story, and it just got a little bit worse and a little bit worse. And before we knew it, we were with her in the middle of a mess. So we walked. So the writers took it step by step, and then take it from step one, step through up to step 10 and we just say what happened exactly right. i see i see what you're saying exactly right and it was as outrageous as the storylines were they made it believable mm-hmm. because it happened a little baby step at a time so i think when when you listen to a show i hope i'm not wrecking it for you here mm-hmm. but i think when you listen to a show that you think is good and you've got really good taste in good shows I think you're going to come away and say that was believable. Even science fiction, X minus one. If you listen to X minus one, if you listen to Tom Corbett, if you listen to any of these, they sound believable. Well, okay. Let me throw you. Let me throw you a uh, a curve at you then. Oh, I don't want to hear it. <laughs> okay. What? We'll talk about one of your favorite genres. Uh huh. Detectives. Uh huh. I love Sam Spade. I enjoy Philip Marlowe. Uh-huh. The storylines don't always make sense. No, they don't. So why do we like those, char- why do we like those shows? It's, it's the characters, and it's part of the genre. It's just the way it's set up. I mean, we don't, we don't believe that Wild Bill Hickok and Jingles actually ran around shooting the bad guys either, but it's entertaining. They're not plays. They're not serious stuff. And what they do, if you think about the, the image, um, the stereotypical image of private detectives, I don't know if Sam Spade came first and the definition came later, or we have been surrounded with the definition and suddenly we discover Sam Spade and he fits. I don't know. I find it believable. Okay, you know, I, I, it's, I make it a train to the... Uh 
approach that you're a new detective show and you're able to figure it. At least I did as a kid. Mm-hmm. You don't, I'm not able to do that with Sam Bade or Philip Marlowe. Well, we've, we've talked about that. Yeah. I, I told you, it, it's just, especially when you get to the end of Philip Marlowe, <laughs> starts explaining, well, the lady with the blonde hair was the one who went ahead and socked the one with the red hair, but before the, she socked the one with the red hair, we figured out that she was in the green car. Right. And he would just go on and on and on and say, I didn't hear that. <laughs> <laughs> when did that happen? Right. <laughs> exactly. Right. Maybe that's part of the charm. It's, right. It's so campy. Yeah. But it, it's campy. This is a, that's a good word. It is camp. And I love camp. Okay, so what is camp? What is the definition of campy? Oh, just, um... Silly. Oh gosh, you know that's such a great word or such a great question because we use the word camp. Right. We. I mean, we always refer uh, Batman, the Batman show, of the '60s being campy. That's what the first time I ever even heard used because people loved it because it was campy. It was campy. It was um, silliness. It was fantasy wrapped with realism. Um, there's nobody who runs around in tights and a mask. Not in, not in, not in public. Not in public. Not, not in public. <laughs> 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 you really did take a nap. <laughs> oh, that's funny. That's funny. No, and, and Superman ran around in tights. <laughs> but when, he, when we get to something like a Vincent Price movie, and he's in the, the Wax Museum, or the House of Wax, or uh-huh. what the name of it was. And he was, a, um, you know, kind of a, a mad man in there and, and tried to cover it well. And it actually did a pretty good job. I mean, it's just, it's black and white. It's old-time stuff. It's nothing that you would see on the screen today. The stories are simple. They're, they're campy. You know, Bella Lugosi mm-hmm. turns into a bat. That's candy. Okay. Good. I like camp. Yeah. But the campier, the better. So maybe the detectives are campy. Could be. I, I, while, while we're talking, I'm going to have to look up the, <laughs> the definition of camp. Oh, my goodness. So you keep talking for a second. It's amazing how Patricia and I work on this script all week long. And, you and, can tell, right? And you can just tell that we... we it, we it looks like we do the totally app web from our uh, from our mind, but it's been scripted. We had this written out on Tuesday. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. We mm-hmm. have. Do you believe that? Had it written out. Do you believe that? I'll show you the book and bridge. So you know. Hmm. Campy is not in my thesaurus. Um, campsite, rustic shack group, affecting. Anything that makes her smile. Overact on a stage or a musical production. Oh, yeah. That'll work. Yeah. That's the ticket. Yeah. We can do that. You bet. Ergo, we have Campy. Is this good? 
camp it good. I always go, I stuff like that. And stuff like that there. Mm-hmm. So, back to Dashlehan, the poor guy. All right, do you, do you remember the name of the dog, Nick and Nora's dog? Ashton. Very good. Yeah. Do you know what kind of a dog it was? Um... No reason. I would say a toy poodle. Well, you, you're pretty close because it was a little white. Yeah, yeah, that's what I remember the kid looking at a little white little thing. Yeah, it was a wire-haired terrier. Ah, okay, okay. It would know a wire-haired. Yeah. I didn't know it was a wire-haired terrier, and I loved the movies. Okay, Myrna Loy, who portrayed Nora in the film series, an extremely attractive woman, became very popular in Paris. Everyone fell in love with her freckles. Isn't that interesting? I didn't know she had freckles. Did you know? No. But I know what she did during the war. She drove a truck, too? Uh, she pretty much gave up for a movie career side and volunteered for the Red Cross. Oh, bless her heart. Yeah. Well, okay. Everyone fell in love with it. This is nice. Everyone fell in love with her freckles, and French cosmeticians, it was said, were kept busy putting the Loy freckles on the olive complexion of Parisians. (laughs) Oh, wow. So, you know, an olive complexion would not have freckles Mm -hmm. because it's got more melatonin in the skin. Sure. You know, the the sun would make little speckles. Mm -hmm. Huh. All right, I've got some lines from Dashiell Hammett. And it sounds like they're probably lines from his characters. (laughs) Yeah, I would say, uh, here's looking to you, kid. Pardon? Here's looking to you. Yeah, things like that. Things like that. One of them is feed the lettuce to the bunny and eat the bunny. You don't eat the lettuce, you eat the bunny. Bunny, uh-huh, uh-huh. You're a bunny, but I mean, doesn't that sound like one of his characters would say that? Oh, no. Hey, sugar, you feed the lettuce to the bunny and eat I the bunny. I guess. Lettuce. <laughs> I mean, doesn't that sound like yep. one of his characters? Yep. Yeah. Okay. And another one is, I deserve all the love you can spare me. And I want a lot more than I deserve. Ah, wonderful. That's a great line. That, that's, I mean, that's that's not Sam Spade or Philip Marlowe either. No. Because they both thought they deserved everything. No. Okay. Now, this one might be a Sam Spade. I like women. I really like women. Now, that, Sam wouldn't say that. Who would say that? Richard Diamond. You think? Don't you think that's more of a Richard Diamond? Richard Diamond. <laughs> yeah, I know. I don't know who that would fit. Well, I do. I have mean, you know, Sam. Sam was sort of an interesting character. If you think about it, mm-hmm. you know, he had a. Uh, he 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 loved the married actor role, female, but she was willing to you know toss her to the cops. You know, in the uh, multi Falcon. Mm-hmm. And Effie in the in the book was a very hard woman, I thought. Lorraine Tuttle played it very soft. Yeah. So I don't know. I mean, I don't know if he really was really much of a ladies guy. Hmm. Well, Gerald Moore, as we found out, yeah. was very well educated which is kind of a surprise when it's juxtaposed with the character he played. Right. The character he played was streetwise, not 
school-wise, but street-wise. Right. Very smart on the streets, but and that, that wasn't him in real life. He was very well-educated mm-hmm. and um, the great-grandson of Sigmund Freud. And spoke several languages. French, fluent French, and mm-hmm. I believe it was German. Something like As that. Fluent and fluently, I mean... And that's why he sounded so terrific in that Our Miss Brooks oh, yeah. episode. Oh, my goodness. I never would have guessed. Because, and I had just finished saying, uh, when you hear Gerald Moore, it's Gerald Moore. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when he was Archie, he was Philip Marlowe. Yep. He was Philip Marlowe. He said, you know, you could go right down yeah, the line. Yeah, when, when he was Johnny Dollar, he was still Philip Marlowe. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. You just recognized his voice. You knew who he was. And regardless of the role, he was supposed to be Philip Marlowe, and that's the way I hear him. Yeah. And then he comes up with this wonderful French accent, <laughs> and it turns out because he speaks French or spoke French fluently. But that, that was too much. Okay, I got some poop on on um, Howard Duff. All right. What about old Howard? I can... Old Howard. Let's see. He was six feet tall. He was born in Seattle, Washington. Uh-huh. Excuse me. Yes. How do you know this stuff? When was his birthday? Go ahead. Tell me when his birthday was. He was born in 1920. He died He died in 1990. He was age 70. Died in Santa Barbara, California. His best friend was Elliot Lewis. He passed away a few weeks after Elliot did. They both served in the Armed Forces Radio. They both had to do calisthenics and things in the parking lot in L.A. Then go in and cut recordings. You could hear Howard Duff doing the voiceover soundtrack for they hit the Armed Forces Radio Service. He had a great voice. He uh, first big break in radio was Ceiling was uh, Ceiling Unlimited. No, not Ceiling Unlimited. Oh, there was a side one of the early sci-fi shows. Can't take a bit at the moment. Anyway, tell me about Howard Duff. <laughs> and why should I do that? <laughs> <laughs> I want to know. I want to learn more. He was married to Ida Lupino. That's right. Yeah. Two wives, and they they had a son or a daughter. Let me see. And they had a they had a record to, a, a record together, which I have a recording. I should play someday. He was married to her for a long time. Yeah. Let's see. Ida and Howard did not last um, fifteen years. They yeah. were married for 15 years, but did not officially divorce until 1984. He was 76 when he died. He was 76, okay. Yeah, 1913. Uh, okay. Yeah, you're off the hook, kid. I, oh, jeez. <laughs> I can get right down to the end here, and it said they had one daughter, Bridget. Bridget Duff, born in 1952. So that's new enough. Bridget might still be with us. Maybe so. It was sort of a rock and roll marriage, I understand. Yes. Yes, indeed. Yeah. He, by by association, was one of the 150 writers, directors, and performers who wound up listed in Red Channels. Right. Pamphlet that that listed the... Right. It was only 151. But he was put on the list because Dashiell Hammett... Correct was um, dubbed from the Un-American Exhibition. Right. You know who Howard Duff used to date before he married Ida Lupino? 
No. And he used to take her to the radio show. Who? 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 Ava Gardner. No. Yeah. Really? Yeah, he was dating Ava Gardner. And many times Ava Gardner was, was sitting in the control, control room watching the, the Sam Bates shows. Great fun. Is it okay? I really am disappointed that it wasn't Lorraine Tuttle. <laughs> <laughs> she was such a great Effie. Oh, yeah. She was so good. Effie was the perfect character for that. Yes, yeah. And that was strictly because Lorraine Tuttle decided to play it that way. She thought, the char- she thought Sam needed that support. And indeed it was. I yeah. was going to ask you if Dashiell Hammett had written the character like that, or nope. did Lorene shape it like uh, Shirley Mitchell did Throckmorton? Throckmorton. So it was Lorene. Mm-hmm. She, she took the character and put her personality in it. Well, not necessarily hers, but she put personality into the character. And you know, sometimes when Lorene Tuttle got sick or went on vacation, it was her daughter that played the role. It was her daughter. Yeah, her daughter, was, they played the role of Buffy. So occasionally when you heard a person, that was Lorraine's daughter. And they sounded so much alike. Yeah. You, the, the character of Buffy was just as screwy as Effie, but enough difference that you could tell it was a different person. And, that, and she died very, very young. Really? Barbara Wood. She was married to John Williams, the famous composer of film today. Uh-huh. And when she passed away, you know, John w- Williams still remained close to Lorraine until she passed away. So, like, um, basically more or less, you know, <laughs> what happened to her? Um, she obviously was ill. It must have been. I don't know. What, what, uh, let's look it up. It's Barbara Ruick, but married to John Williams. I don't know what illness, but she died very young. Yeah. That really makes me sad. Well, I've got an early day tomorrow. Not I know you do. Day, but a day. You got a big day. Well, a medium day. I don't care. It's still a big day because <laughs> Patricia ain't home. It's, yeah, I'm not home. <laughs> um, it's, it's just a medium day. But I do have to prepare for my medium day. So if we could... We can. Go through a little bit of information about Heavenly Days, which are, is our Fibber McGee and Molly show tonight, and sign off a little bit early and not have to show up next week with a note from the principal. That would be super. Well, considering you got to get ready for your big interview next Saturday. I know. That's going to be great fun. I know. I ain't going to be a hoot. June Ray, yeah. who, among other things... Is Rocky J. Squirrel. <laughs> I was like, I love Bullwinkle and Rocket J. Squirrel, the Bullwinkle show. And June was not only Rocky, the squirrel, she was also Natasha, the Russian spy, who was with Boris. We never found out if they were married. Probably not, because it was Boris Badenov and she was Natasha Fatale. Oh, spelled F A T A L E. So I have to make sure that we get from June the proper pronunciation of her second character in that show. Never would have guessed that, the, that she did both of those. So anyway, here's the story. Heavenly Days is, of course, Molly McGee's favorite expression. One of her favorite. Now, I guess that, that would be her favorite expression. What do you think? I think so. 
Heavenly days. Heavenly days. And she would say that mm, more meaningfully than, oh dear. But, oh dear, was always perfectly placed. <laughs> oh dear. When Fibber did his thing. But heavenly days. So they made a play called Heavenly Days, and it was a movie. Now, the, the play came after the movie, or the radio show came after the movie. And I mentioned before that Jim and Marion Jordan just poured themselves into their, um, their work as performers. While they were doing a weekly show of Fibber McGee and Molly, which would have put me down, I mean, it would have been... <laughs> I'm finished for it until they wrote, they show me the script tomorrow. Um, they did five movies. They did Fibber and Molly. They appeared in This Way, Please. Who finished, let's see, in 1941. What did they do in 1941? I've got... Uh, let's see here. What was it? Make him more out for, uh, you know, the one with Bergen. Look, look who's laughing. Wasn't it? Look, that was 41, I think. So in in um, in 1935, I, I, my um, information sheet got a little messed up here, and I just had to close it out and open it up again. Okay, this way, please, was in 1939. Look who's laughing was with Charlie McCarthy and right. Edgar Bergen. Here we go again was in 1942, and Heavenly Days in 1943. So I mean, it's. It, it's just incredible. 39, 41, 42, 43, and the show every single week. Mm -hmm. Plus the in-betweens, like the one that we're going to be hearing tonight. It's, it's called Heavenly Days. It's the Screen Guild Theater show from February 2nd, 1947. Fibber wants to fix the nation. And he gets a chance to do it. He's a perfect patriot. He wants to be in Washington and fix everything, and he really does try. It's like uh, his favorite, oh, any blood-red American, every 100, blood-red American can do that. Red-blooded American. Yes. Yes, any red-blooded American mm -hmm. could do that. And that's a, an expression that they borrowed from the show. He says that occasionally mm -hmm. in the show. Oh, any red-blooded American <laughs> would do that. Do you remember? Uh-huh. Yeah. I sure do. And it, it, they they borrowed it for this. so they got Heavenly Days from Molly. They've got any Red Blooded American mm -hmm. from Fibber. I had forgotten about that. That's good. And he is designated as the average man by George Gallup, whom he, Fibber did not know, had no idea who this man was, and and was really offended when George said, "We need the average man. We need, and you're perfect. We need an average man." And Fibber was quite put out by that. So anyway, we're going to be listening to Heavenly Days, the Screen Guild Theater presentation from February 2nd, 1947. It's got Fibber McGee and Molly in it, and they are Fibber McGee and Molly in this show. They're not pulling any sneaky on us like they did in suspense. And I am going to sign off. We'll be back next week with June Foray. And I'm really excited about that. Nice having you with me, Patricia, for the last two weeks when you've not been home. Oh, I'm glad I could be here. Yeah. Thank you for being with us, everybody. You have a great week. Have a safe week. We'll see you next Saturday. And here we go. With us. Good night, everybody. 
Ladies and gentlemen, tonight Lady Esther presents the Screen Guild players in RKO's charming homespun comedy, Heavenly Days, by Howard Estabrook and Don Quinn. It stars that well-known couple from 79 Wistful Vista, Fibber McGee and Molly, the Lady Esther Screen Guild players in Heavenly Days. Sir, doesn't pay to fool with books. Maybe some folks won't know what you're fooling. That's Fibber McGee of Wistful Vista. And the book he's referring to is lying open on the dining room table. A history book. On one page, a picture of the USS Constitution. And on the opposite page, the famous spirit of 76. But it's the ship that's giving Fibber all the trouble. He has just finished carving a model in wood. A small model but not small enough to go into the bottle that's on the table. And as he stands there ruefully looking at it... It's no use. I'll never get this ship into the bottle. Not a chance. Oh, McGee, I just got the most exciting letter. Must have measured it wrong. Remember Cousin Clark in Washington? Too broad in the beam. <laughs> McGee, I'll thank you not to refer to my... Re oh, <laughs> you mean the ship. What's the matter now? Just run into a bottleneck. Or rather, it won't run into a bottleneck. Did you say letter? Who's it from? Cousin Alvin Clark in Washington. Came airmail. Hmm. Airmail? That guy tosses five-cent stamps around like they were made out of paper. What's he want? Well, he wants us to come to Washington for a visit. To Washington? I think it's very friendly of Alvin and Hetty. Oh, you'd like them if you knew them. I know too many people now. Do you know what our Christmas cards cost us this year? <laughs> Don't talk nonsense. This is the third time they've invited us and we ought to go. Listen, Molly... Washington is no place for yokels with grass suitcases. Why, that's ridiculous. I have a nice alligator bag. It's overcrowded, overworked, overrated, and over our heads financially. Why, the hotels there... Yeah, but Cousin Alvin wants us to stay at their home. Oh. Charity, eh? <laughs> but, McGee, he wants you to help him with some post-war problems. This might be a big chance for you if you don't... if you want to make something of yourself, <laughs> which you don't seem to... But you could if you had any real spirit or ambition. My gosh, Molly, I don't see why we have to go to Washington just to prove I've got ambition. I could have ambition right here, couldn't I? Well, dearie, you make up your little mind about it. I've got to go back in the hall carpet. Okay. Ah, there goes a good kid. She thinks I'll change my mind, but I won't. No, sir, I'm not going to Washington, and I mean that. Why don't you go to Washington, McGee? Because I got no business there. Everybody's got business in Washington, McGee. Everybody but me. Wistful Vista is good enough for me. Always has been and always will be. Well, maybe you're right. McGee, are you arguing with yourself again? Yeah, and I won, too. Now, <laughs> oh, let me see. There must be some way to get this dead-ratted ship into that... Huh? What's that? Gosh, am I hearing things? Herbert McGee... I'm looking for you. For me? Where'd you come from? Right out of that book on the table there. Right out of history. The history of the greatest nation on earth. Say, I've seen you. You're the... That's the... right. The spirit of 76. Yeah. 
I'm the fellow in the middle and getting a little tired of it. Herbert McGee, you've got to go to Washington. What do you mean, I gotta? They need you down there. Not me. Too many people in Washington messing up the country right now. Herbert McGee, they're waiting for you. Horse feathers. They never even heard of me. Well, that's the reason. It's time they heard the voice of the average man. Average man? Me? Why, I'm way above the average. Think so? Well, would you like to prove it? Say, by getting that ship into the bottle? Oh, well, maybe. All right, then I'll prove to you just how average you are. Watch. Hey, it went in. You got the ship inside the bottle. My gosh, how'd you do it? Professional secret. Oh, McGee. I have to go now. There's Molly. Uh, just remember what I told you, son. I don't believe it. I just don't believe it. Are you still talking to yourself, dearie? Hey, Molly, do you... Do you hear anything? No. Yes. You do? Yes, the refrigerator. No. <laughs> you sure you don't hear... I mean... Oh, I McGee, thought... you did it. You got the ship inside the bottle. How on earth did you do it? Oh, it was simple. <laughs> I just concentrated and... I mean, well, it's a sort of professional secret. Say, have you thought any more about going to Washington? Ah, Washington. That's the last place in the world I ever expected to go, but... I, George Molly, I think we should go. Ha, <laughs> I'm glad you changed your mind, McGee. When can we leave? Why not tonight? The 817. Molly, you start to pack. I'll phone for the tickets. Hello, operator. Give me the Union Depot. Oh, oh, is that you, Mert? Oh, dear. What say, Mert? How's every little thing, Mert? Is, eh? How's your family? Huh? Tried all over town and couldn't. Couldn't what? How's her family? Oh. <laughs> what say, Mert? Yeah, Union Depot. Going to Washington on government business. Strictly hush-hush. Huh? I mean, we're going to Washington on the QT. <laughs> Molly, she says we can't go on the QT. We got to take the Pennsylvania. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Mert, connect me with the ticket office and... Huh? Oh, they're busy? Well, call me back when you get them, will you, Mert? Thanks. What was all that talk, McGee, about government business? Molly, I'm going to tell those people in Washington just what I... Uh, well, your cousin Alvin wants me to help him, doesn't he? That's right. The letter did say that. 